This is Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. This is a man. There is a man in your kingdom, and he has the spirit of holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in this kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father... Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. 
He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent this hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was, compl- and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let's pray. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your hands sovereignly ruling over this world and the affairs of man. Thank you, God, that you do great things. You've done it historically, and you do great things in our day. God, I pray as we turn to the Bible, most holy, great God, you would speak to us, challenge us where we need challenged, encourage us where we need encouraged, be mightily among us. Thank you, the God, the same God who was God in Daniel's day, you're the same God today, and you will always be God on the throne of the universe. Have your way among us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what an incredible passage in Daniel. Like all the chapters in Daniel, it's just hair standing on the back of your head kind of stuff. It's really, really powerful. And it's, it's awesome because we know that God is that, like that. God is this great God who is in control of this, this world. So I'm going to unpack for us um, some of these verses we've been looking at, and hopefully it will help us. Uh, let me start with a story. There was a, a guy speeding in his car. Uh, obviously, he wasn't a Christian. And uh, he, he, was, he was speeding, just driving crazy fast. And he, he didn't pass any speed camera. He didn't pass any kind of travel cops, nothing like that. But what happened was there was a helicopter way, way up, caught him on the radar and caught him speeding, and then flagged down to a, tra- a police cop further down the road to pull him over. And the police cop pulled him over, and the guy said, okay, yeah, I know I was speeding, but listen, how on earth did you know I was speeding? I didn't pass any speed traps or anything like that. And the guy went like this. And the guy said, you're kidding me. Even he's against me? Oh, boy. <laughs> God sees he sees your life. And human beings are accountable. That's what you see in Daniel 5. God sees and God holds accountable. Before we kind of apply this to our lives, these chap- this chapter we've read, let me just give you a bit of context of what was going on. The book of Daniel was written around about 538 BC. That's about two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, 2,500 years ago from our day. Ancient history. 
but it was very historical. The, the events written in Daniel were also recorded in history and discovered in archaeology. You see it. Belshazzar was the son of the famous king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most mentioned pagan king in the Old Testament. Belshazzar was his son. And at this event, you see him throwing this huge party for about a thousand of his nobles and his, his chief people in his operation. And the, the party, like many of these ancient king parties, would have lasted several days. And there was food and there was an abundance of drink. And th- that was what was going on. There were three ancient historians who also recorded this party. So this isn't just in the book of Daniel. This was also recorded in secular ancient history. So that some of the uh, historians that recorded it was Josephus, the Jewish historian. There's uh, Herodotus and Xenophion, all recorded in history this party. And this has nothing to do with the Bible, but they recorded some details about the party. They recorded that there was ostriches that were used to pull trays of fruit and nuts and delicacies. So people, this is like amazing, like an ostrich passed by and the people would help themselves to food. They, they said that there was the incense in the air, the intoxicating incense was so thick in the chamber where the party was that people would just walk in and they would get intoxicated with, with the stuff that was, you know, it's like walking through some parts of Edinburgh sometimes in the night. While he was drunk, uh, the Bible records that he asked for the gold and silver vessels which had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Temple in Jerusalem was the center of the worship of the true God, the only God, the creator of the universe. And Nebuchadnezzar had overthrown Jerusalem and taken captive the people of Jerusalem and Judah and took also the items of worship from the temple. So here's Belshazzar taking these items and using them in his party. And it was at that moment, and he not only had the audacity to do that, to misuse these items which were used in the worship of the true God, he in that moment worshipped the false gods, the gods of gold and silver and all these things. So worship things that aren't really gods. But he, he totally slandered the name of the true God. And it says at that moment, verses 5 and 6, suddenly fingers of a, of a ha- human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall near the lampstand, near the royal palace, in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote, his face turned pale and was so frightened that his legs became weak. 150 years earlier, Isaiah had predicted this event. And you're going to see this all through history. The, the events that are unfolding, which seem so chaotic and so out of control and so like human beings are doing crazy things, these events God foresaw, and actually many of the events were prophesied about years before. So Isaiah, 150 years before this, said this in Isaiah chapter 21. He said, My body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I'm staggered by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Get up, you officers. Oil your shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go post the lookout and have them report what he sees. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. He gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The images of its gods lie scattered on the grounds. Historically, the night of this party was historically the night that the city of Babylon fell. It's recorded in verses 30 and 31. At the end of the chapter, it says, that very night, Belshazzar, 
king of the Babylonians, was slain. Just that very night, he sees his hand appear. Daniel brings the interpretation. That very night, he was slain. I mean, he said to Daniel, Daniel, if, anyone can, if you can interpret this for me, you know, I'll give you a gold chain around your neck and a purple robe. You know, I'll make you a wrapper. Okay, uh, you have gold, chrome rims on your on your on your SUV, and you know the base bin in the back. Boom, boom, boom. As you travel along, I make you a wrap. And he said, "Listen, you can keep your wrap stuff because the reality is, Daniel said, I, I don't want your rewards. And here's why: he didn't want his reward. Why? Because you're not going to be king very long. Daniel knew the time bomb was ticking. Daniel knew the imminency of this judgment of God. Literally that very night, the Babylonians. He was king. He was killed. Darius the Medes, also known as Cyrus, took over the kingdom age 62. Suddenly, and this is what history records. It's not in the Bible now. This is in secular history. The city of the Babylonians, um, Babylon was thought to be impenetrable. I mean, it was an incredible, um, huge city. It was been discovered now in the ruins of Babylon. The archaeologists have discovered this, that the actual Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. It was built right over the Euphrates River. The city was 14 miles by 14 miles square. It had a brick wall that was 56 miles in circumference, 90 meters high, seven and a half meters deep, thick, the wall was constructed, there was a second wall constructed behind the main wall, 23 meters behind it, there was a second wall. The walls not only went that high, they also went 10 meters underground so that people couldn't bury under them. It was an incredible um, bit of archae- architecture, incredible. There were 250 towers around the wall, each tower was 140 meters high. Historians uh, record that Babylon fell that night, and here's how they fell. Soldiers were so drunk that they forgot to close the gates, which stopped the people getting through the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River traveled through the center of the city, but there were gates that the Euphrates River flowed through. And that night, the, the soldiers were so drunk that they forgot to close off those gates. Darius, the Medes, uh, also helped divert the flow of the river so that the water level went down and the soldiers came under the city wall on the riverbed that night and they came in through the gates that had been left open. The soldiers were so drunk because of the party that they were unable, even when they saw that they were in trouble, to defend the city. It's an incredible moment. The downfall of an incredible empire, the Babylonian empire, it fell in a night with hardly a battle. And Belshazzar died the very night that God proclaimed his judgment upon him. Incredible. Recorded in the Bible. Let me just give you four lessons. What what can you learn from this? How does this affect your life? Monday morning, Tuesday, as you go to work, as you do your studies, as you go into your community, as you live your life in 2018. How does this impact you? It totally does. Four lessons we can learn from Daniel chapter 5. First lesson is this, is that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. Say God is sovereign. What's clear from Daniel is that God is involved in world events. God's on the throne. God is in control. You know, even even when you look at Jesus' coming, what blows me away is that God was controlling the events of the world even when people thought God wasn't in control. 
the events of the world led, led up to, the retur- to Jesus' coming into this world. So there was a situation where the Roman Empire had taken over the world and they proclaimed Pax Romana, peace in Rome. All of a sudden there was peace across the known world. Romans were famous for the roads they made. So everywhere, wherever Rome conquered, they built these incredible roads. You know the saying, all roads lead to Rome. At the same time as that, well, before that, Alexander the Great had done something that hadn't been done since the beginning of time. He, he made a common language, every, Hellenization. Everyone spoke the Greek language. So all of a sudden on planet Earth, everyone spoke one language. There was great roads and there was peace because one empire ruled the entire world. It was at that time God sent Jesus Christ into this world. Isn't that amazing? He put in the center of the nations the Son of God. To bring a message of salvation to the entire world at a time when it was easy. You could travel, there was peace, everyone spoke the same language. Isn't that incredible? God is sovereign over the events and over the situations on planet Earth. You see, God being sovereign over more recent history. Anyone see uh, the Christopher Nolan movie Dunkirk last year? Amazing movie. Amazing movie, but based on historical fact. And it, it, it depicts the, the evacuation of the soldiers. 338,000 soldiers were evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk. Now, the estimate of the evacuation was much, much lower. They thought some tens of thousands would maybe be evacuated, not 338,000. But here's what Christopher Nolan didn't show in the movie that happened in history. King George V, sorry, King George VI, declared a day of national prayer and fasting at the time when the soldiers were on the beaches of Dunkirk. That's the bit he didn't show in the movie. But that is why it turned out so incredibly. Days before the evacuation, Hitler strangely halted his tanks and his army. They were advancing on the beaches, but he halted them several miles inland. Hitler's generals couldn't understand why Hitler had made this decision. It infuriated them. They didn't understand it. Even now, historians do not know why Hitler told them to stop. We know because people were praying. Hitler's tanks didn't advance and it gave the time for people to evacuate it. On the day of the evacuation, there was an incredible calm on the ocean, enabling small vessels to make the trip. God set it all up. God is sovereign over the events of the human race. God is sovereign today over world events. God is sovereign over Brexit. I don't know whether you voted for it or against it. I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying God has something in mind. God is sovereign over Donald Trump. Say praise the Lord. Okay. God's in control. God's in control. God is sovereign over Islamic State. God is sovereign over Islam's spread around this world. God's in control, even though you're worried and you're concerned. God's in control. God's in control even in this secularized Western world where it seems like God has been removed so much from society. God's in control. God's in control. I am utterly convinced. And that helps me. It should help you. It should help you navigate life. God's not thinking, oh no, what are they doing? God is in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's on the throne. Now, just to be really clear, he allows things to happen. And sometimes, oftentimes, he steps in. But when I say God is sovereign, I'm not a fatalist. 
It's not like, okay, sera, sera, whatever we will be. Just because I'm saying God is sovereign, it doesn't mean I believe that everything that happens was his design. No chance. There's a pile of stuff going down on earth that God did not intend. God did not design. I'm telling you, God is good. He's not wicked. He's the author of good. But I'm telling you, he's sovereign. And I believe God is sovereign. However, I do believe your decisions change things. And I do believe our prayers change things. But that doesn't contradict. I believe God is thoroughly on the throne. Why should, you know, how does this impact you? How does this affect how you, okay, let me put it this way. Should believers get involved in the affairs of this world? I believe God gets involved in the affairs of this world. You see this in Daniel 5. And I believe his people, you see this in Daniel himself, should get involved with the affairs of the world. Daniel, the whole book of Daniel is about God not abandoning a secular nation. His people in the midst of a secular nation. Daniel was a believer in the midst of a secular world. And God used Daniel to get thoroughly involved in that secular world and bring a revolution to bring the sovereign will of God into a world that had rejected him. And I said this in, in Daniel chapter 1 when we preached from that, that. The reason Daniel was so effective is he heard from heaven, but he spoke in Babylonian. He understood how to speak in a way that people got. He spoke in a way that his world got, in the way that his culture could understand. And yet he heard from heaven, and that's what made him effective. You've got to learn to speak in Babylonian, but learn from heaven. You've got to learn to speak the language of the day. You've got to learn to connect with the people of your day. Not be so religious and weird and speaking like, what language are they speaking? Like Christianese. God wants you to speak the language of the people and be among the people like Jesus was among the people. Go to their parties, hang out with them. Don't do the things they do. Jesus didn't. But be with them, absolutely. Love them despite it all. Don't sit there in judgment on them. Love them to bits. Don't get involved with the sin, but love the sinners. Remember where you came from. Remember what the battles you currently have. Realize God is a God of grace. Speak in Babylonian, but hear from heaven. Uh, Andrew and Sue. Um, Andrew's the apostle who oversees our church and our network of churches. Uh, they were recently in the States. And they got to know a, a United States senator who was a Christian. And they were asking about how this person became a Christian and they were explaining that for years they had not been a Christian as a senator working in the, in the, in the, in the government system. And they said that oftentimes the only time they heard from Christians was when they were telling them about what they were against or when they were asking for money. And so it was a pretty negative view this person had of Christians. Until one day, a particular Christian came to them and, said, and they were expecting, okay, you're going to complain about something or you're going to tell me about what you're against. And this Christian came to them and said, is there anything we can do for you? And that kind of took them by surprise. That wasn't what they saw coming. And they said, there isn't, but thanks for asking. And the thing about this particular Christian is they kept in regular contact with this U.S. senator and showed a deep interest in them and was genuine about their offer. And over time, they built a friendship. And through that friendship, this U.S. senator became a believer in Jesus. And now the U.S. senator, this particular friend of Andrew and Sue's, it says that they see themselves on mission serving God as a senator in the United States. Isn't that brilliant? Ray McCauley said this, we should be known for what we're, not, we should not be known for what we're against, rather for what we're for. 
And so often Christians are known for what they're against. But that's, that's only half the story. The Bible's not just full of do nots. The Bible's full of do's and go for this and make this happen. And Christians should be known not just for what you're against, but what you're for. Get involved in the secular world. God has no problem with that. God's not nervous by that. God's sovereign. He is sovereign over the affairs of human beings. Second thing we realize from this chapter is this. God puts down and God raises up. Here we see in this chapter, Belshazzar calls for Daniel. Daniel has earned a reputation for himself now by the way God has used him to interpret dreams, by the miracles that God has performed through this man in Babylon. By this point, Daniel is now an old man. And Belshazzar calls Daniel before him and asks for the interpretation. He reminds, Daniel stands before Belshazzar and reminds Belshazzar of his father Nebuchadnezzar. And last week we looked at Daniel chapter 4, in which Dan did a great job of unpacking how Nebuchadnezzar, who had been full of pride, had been humbled by God in the most remarkable of ways. Literally, he was, uh, he was driven from the land of the living. He went mental, and he lived among the animals for a period of time until he realized that there was a true God, one God, the true God, the creator. He acknowledged God, and then God restored him to his, his uh, sovereign rule. And this was Nebuchadnezzar. This is Belshazzar who was his son. And the point was this. It says in verses 22 to 24, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew full well what happened to his dad. He probably was alive during that period. I remember when my dad went mental. He would have remembered that. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, in fact, Daniel chapter 4 was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. That's interesting, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter in the Bible. And that chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar to all the people that he was in charge of, which included everyone in the known world. Babylon ruled the world, and he wrote to the whole world, basically saying, you've got to worship the true God. Now, if he was telling the whole world that, do you not think he would also be telling his son that? I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad. I know that I try and raise my son and my daughter to believe in God. When God does something in my life, I tell them about it. They're the first to know. So Belshazzar would have known firsthand from his dads, you worship the true God, not the false gods. You worship the true God. And he would have heard the amazing testimonies that Nebuchadnezzar had experienced. He would have heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and how God had rescued them. He would have heard about how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He would have heard about how God had revealed his dream to Daniel and the interpretation as well. Belshazzar would have known all this. He should have known better. She should have humbled himself, but instead, Daniel said to him, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his templates brought before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them, and you praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your very life and all your ways. Strong. Therefore he has set, sent the hands that wrote the inscription. The biggest issue in Belshazzar's life was pride. And let me suggest to you, in our lives, the biggest issue you and I will face behind the other issues that are going on will be pride. 
is uh, the story of Mike Tyson. True, true story, apparently. Uh, Mike Tyson was on an aeroplane, and uh, he, there was turbulence, and uh, you know, kind of the pilot came over the tannoy saying, "Please, everyone, if you could, please re- return to your seats and make sure you're fastened your seat belts because we're about to experience uh, some turbulence." And the air hostess was coming along, just checking that everyone was belted in. And they came, she came to Mike Tyson, you know, the famous boxer, Mike Tyson. And she said to Mike Tyson, uh, excuse me, sir, you need to put your seatbelt on. And Mike Tyson arrogantly said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she replied, well, Superman didn't need a plane either. <laughs> you know, and... You know, we laugh at Mike Tyson, but we're kind of like that. We kind of think, oh, I, I don't need God. I can figure this out. I can. And whether we say that, with, we, we, some of us wouldn't dare say that with our mouths, but sometimes our actions, that's pretty much what we're saying. You know, the way you go to the doctor first before trusting God for your healing, I have no problem with you going to the doctor. It's just that he shouldn't be first, he should be second. You know, or, or the, way, the way you deal with your money kind of indicates to me, you're kind of trusting yourself over God. The way you make all your decisions based on money rather than on what God leads you to do kind of says you have more confidence in your ability than in God's. All that's arrogance, folks. Pride is our biggest issue. In fact, the first sin ever committed in the universe was pride. This happened before Adam and Eve's sin. This was the sin before the first human sin. And this sin was committed by Satan. It's recorded for you in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which records how in Satan's heart, pride was found. Satan desired the very throne of God. He wanted to be God and not under God's authority. Pride was found in Satan's heart. That was the fall before the fall. That was the original sin before the sin of mankind. And then Satan tempted mankind, and then we fell as well. But the original fall, the ultimate fall behind the fall, was the fall of Satan. And the first sin ever committed wasn't anything to do with a piece of fruit. It was to do with pride and arrogance in the heart of Satan. Augustine, the great theologian from the early centuries of the, of the Christian church, he said this, that pride is the mother of all sins. It gives birth to every sin. I, I challenge you, Whenever you sin, whenever you blow it, whenever you make a mistake, whatever that is, whether it's an action or a word or something you've done, if you follow that pattern of thought back far enough, I'm pretty certain every time you will see somewhere in there a seed of pride. Even if the outcome sin looks nothing like pride, you follow it back enough. Usually right down at the very beginning of it, at one point a proud thought came in that led to that sequence of events that led to that sin. Pride is the mother of all sin. It is pregnant with all other sins. And you know, there's a universal truth. And this is the universal truth. This, this, this applies in the heavens and this applies on earth. The universal truth, Matthew 23 verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Every time. It's a universal truth. Satan exalted himself. He was humbled. He was cast out Jesus Christ, Dan read it for us, Philippians chapter 2. God humbled himself, although he existed in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he 
humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted. Satan exalted himself and he was humbled. It is a universal principle. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's why fasting and praying is so powerful, by the way. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted every time. God sees to it. It's interesting, there was a study carried out by a man called Jim Collins and a research team, and he published it in a book called From Good to Great. And he, he did a study, he surveyed the 1,400 of the best performing companies in the world. And what he did was he narrowed it down to, he specifically was looking for companies who had had 10 years of pretty good results, average results, to 10 years of market-beating results. Basically, and that, that, that became, he based his book on that from good to great. He wanted to know what was it that changed those companies from just being good companies to suddenly becoming great companies. And in his book, From Good to Great, he narrowed, of the 1,400 companies, he found 12 companies that met that criteria. 10 years of average results to 10 years of market-beating results. 12 companies that matched the criteria. And then he studied, well, what was it in those companies that caused them to go from good to great? And you know what the top two values were in the, in the CEOs, the, the leaders of those companies? The top two characteristics in his research he showed the top two characteristics. Number one was humility in the leader. Now, you wouldn't have seen that one coming, right? You'd have thought it would be like the superstar CEOs. We're going to knock the competition out of the way. We're going to fight our way through. You'd have thought that, but that wasn't the case. Humility. And number two, an unwillingness to quit. That was the two characteristics in the leaders of those 12 companies that they identified through research and analysis. It's an amazing book, From Good to Great. Humility. It even works in the secular world. When Jesus died on the cross, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you ever wonder this, why did Satan allow the cross to happen? We know that Satan was defeated at the cross. Well, why would Satan have then put it on Judas's heart to trigger the cross in the first place if it was his very defeat? And you know what? I think the humility, the humility of God's salvation plan was so, it was so beyond Satan's comprehension. The humility of it just came so under the radar for Satan. In his pride, he couldn't have seen it. In his pride, Satan didn't see the humility of the plan. It just went under Satan's radar. And before Satan realized it, Satan, sin and death had been conquered on the cross. God in his humble plan, God took on flesh. God paid the price for your sin. Jesus died in your place, rose again. And the humility of the plan went right under Satan's radar. Satan didn't see it coming. What he thought was God's defeat was God's greatest victory and was Satan's defeat. He crushed Satan on the head. It says in Psalm 75 verse 7, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting another up. And we see this all the time. And God will do this in churches. If church leaders become arrogant, 
God will pull the church leader down and lift up another. If a, if a politician becomes arrogant, I assure you it won't be long before they are removed and God raises up someone else. It happens in businesses, it happens in world affairs, and you see it happening in the, in the very city of Babylon in this nation. God pulled down Belshazzar and replaced him with Darius, also known as Cyrus. Isn't that amazing? Now, actually, again, this, God bringing political change, again, was predicted by prophets. Jeremiah, about 100 years before this moment, prophesied in, in Jeremiah 51.11. You can look at it in your own time. He prophesied that God would stir up the Medes and the Persians against the Babylonians. 100 years before this moment. I mean, who were the Medes and the Persians? They were hardly even known by, until this point. But Jeremiah, 100 years before, predicted that the Babylonians would be defeated by the Medes and the Persians. Isaiah, in chapter 44 and Isaiah 45, 150 years before these events, Isaiah predicted Cyrus is coming. He even used his name, Cyrus. Isaiah gave us the name Cyrus, a man called Cyrus will arise, and he predicted that he would be God's instrument for bringing change. Cyrus, Darius Cyrus took over the empire of the Babylonians, and within a couple of years, the Jews returned to the lands that they had been taken from in exile. God was overseeing world events. God was pulling down some and raising others up, and in it all, he was accomplishing his purposes. When you're seeing bad stuff happening on planet Earth, I can assure you, even though it looks like, even the cross looked like Satan was having his way. It looked like Judas was having the way. It looked like the Pharisees were having the way. And yet, we know God had his way in the most remarkable way. And if God can do that with the cross, do you not think God can do that with the worst circumstance you face? Do you not think God can take what Satan meant for bad and incredibly in his great plan, turn it around to your advantage. That's the kind of God we serve. Let's hear it for God, the sovereign God of all things. Third thing I want to say is that your life is in his hands. God is intimately acquainted with your ways. Acts 17, 27, 28 says, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And listen, I don't care if your name is Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawkins. In him, you live, move, and have your being. Even if you deny he even exists, your very existence depends on the one you deny. That heartbeat you just had depended on God choosing to use that, that heartbeat. You just breathed in and breathed out. That was a gift from God. Today's a gift from God. That's why it's called the present. You're alive because God decided you'd be alive. And that is the only reason you're alive. It is in him you live, move, and have your being. God is much closer than you realize. I, Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? God sees you. He knows your motives. He knows your thoughts. And that's scary. He doesn't just see what you do. He sees your motives and he sees your thoughts. That should give us a fear of God. Now we hold that in contrast with the incredible love that God has for us. It's amazing that despite him knowing exactly everything about us, he loves us more than anyone else will ever love us. And yet he knows us better than anyone else knows us. Those two, those two shouldn't hold together, right? Because if you knew me better than anyone else knew me, you wouldn't love me. 
In fact, and yet God knows me better than anyone else and he loves me more than anyone else. And it's the same for you. It's mind-blowing. I remember, I remember sitting in the architect's office. We, we, when the church started 20 years ago, I was working as a full-time in an architect's office at the time. And I remember one afternoon I'd been sitting in the architect's office and I can't remember what job I was working on. It was a particular project I was working on and we were specifying tiles for the bathroom in this particular office building. And um, we were wanting tiles in the toilet on the walls. And I was looking at this catalogue, trying to find the right tiles. And as I was flicking through this catalogue, this product catalogue, I came to a picture of their showroom. And in their showroom, I had a picture of some really nice chairs. Really nice chairs. Italian, modernists, kind of chrome and leather chairs. And I thought, I really like them. And I just kept flipping. Anyway, that evening as I was walking home from work, I, I, I lived at Haymarket at the time. That's where we started the church. And I worked down at Murray Place, just right in the city centre there. And I always took a diagonal route through the city because it was more interesting going in the lanes and the side routes and, you know, rather than going in the main streets. And as I walked down <clears throat> around the back of Charlie Muller's in the West End there, the hairdressers, there outside of Charlie Muller's was five of those chairs that I saw in the product catalogue. And I thought, no way. So I went into Charlie Muller's and said, what's happening with those chairs? I said, oh, you can have them if you want. We're getting rid of them. I said, you can't. Thank you. So I've carried five of these chairs. I kind of intertwined them all. And I walked in the door that night and said, Angie, look what I've got. And she said, what earth have you brought home? Mind-blowing. I went back the next day just to get the product catalog out again and looked at it and I thought, because there's some similar chairs, but they were the exact chairs designed by a designer called Matteo Grazzi. Beautiful chrome and leather. And you get copies, but these were the originals. Matteo Grazzi... Um, embedded in the leather on the back of the seat. I thought, wow. God saw a fleeting thought through my head saying, I really like them. God saw that thought. And that night I got those chairs. That blows me away. If you want to see one of them, there's one of them up in my office. Isn't that awesome? Mind-blowing. I believe in a God who sees every thought and action. And that's, that's a good thought, right? But there's some bad thoughts as well, and God sees it all. And you know, the truth is, what we tend to do is we tend to judge others by their actions, and yet we judge ourselves by our intentions, don't we? Oh yeah, well, I intended to do those things. You didn't do it, though. But we judge others by their actions, and we give a lot more grace to ourselves, and yet God sees everything. He knows you better than anyone else knows you, and yet he loves you more than anyone else knows you, loves you. And then finally, this verse, this chapter tells us that God will judge. It tells us that God is sovereign. tells us that God puts down and raises up. It tells us that your life is in his hands. But it finally, it tells us that God will judge. Verses 25 to 28. This was the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, teke, parison. And here's what the words mean. Mini, God has numbered your days and your reign uh, your oh, days of your reign and brought it to an end. Teke, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And boom, that night, the Medes and the Persians invade. An incredible conquest. 
Belshazzar is put to death, the empire changes in a night because God declared it to be so. God removes people suddenly. You see this right through the Bible. You see the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 as he was preaching to a particular dignitary in Cyprus and uh, uh, an enchanter was trying to take the magistrate away from the gospel. Paul turns to him and says, you will be blind for a season. And the man instantly became blind. I believe in a God who does that. You see in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that God struck Uzziah the king instantly with leprosy because he stepped out of humility and started operating out of arrogance. We have an orphanage in India which we're currently building an even bigger version of it. Your giving, by the way, your giving is enabling that to happen. There's about £77,000 that's heading their way from this church to enable that building to be complete. So keep an eye on my my Twitter and Facebook posts because I keep posting photographs because I keep getting regular photograph updates from Solomon who's overseeing that project in India. And it's amazing, it'll accommodate 75 orphans. But the first orphanage we built there, Ivan, uh, he, he kind of raised the money and built that orphanage on a shoestring and he got it going for the sake of some orphans. And the whole, long story short, Ivan had a guy in India, an Indian guy, who was basically looking after these orphans, and Ivan was going to build the orphanage so that they, those kids would have a place to stay. They bought some land to start with. But sadly, the man who was overseeing the orphanage died. So all of a sudden, these orphans were kind of on this land in a kind of ramshackle hut, and the guy who was overseeing the orphanage is dead. His brother, who wasn't a Christian, he was a drunkard. And he was a gambler. He thought, great, I'm taking over the lands. And he kicked the orphans off the lands and he took over the lands. Ivan's father in law, who lived near the orphanage, stepped forward and said, No, you cannot do that. That land was owned by your brother. That land is designated to be an orphanage for these children. We are rebuilding an orphanage for the sake of these children. You cannot do this. And the man says, You can say what you want. It's my brother's land. I'm taking it. And, this, this, and, he st- and so we had to start a court proceeding to try and get that land back to the rightful ownership so that those orphans could have their land. In the middle of that, one week, one week into that proceeding, this, this drunk, this, this guy who was against and trying to take the land from the orphan, within, within one week, that man dropped dead. Dropped dead. I believe it was judged, he was judged by God because he was messing with orphans. You don't mess with orphans. God defends the fatherless, the Bible says. The man dropped dead. A fear of God came in the whole situation and we built the first orphanage. And many orphans have passed through the orphanage and many of them are in different positions and are educated and making a difference. They've gone from the poorest of the poor to actually being influencers in India and church planters and difference makers for the gospel. God judges. And this verse says, You have been weighed in the scales and been found wanting. God has scales. God is just. God is totally just. He's he's totally fair. If God wasn't just, this whole universe would fall into disarray. The very universe is based on the fact of the justice and goodness of God. The Bible says it's the very foundation of his throne. It says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 that man is destined to die once, then after that face judgment. There is no such thing as reincarnation. You do not come back in another form. You don't. The Bible's clear. You are destined to die once and then face judgment. That's how it goes, folks. There's no reincarnation. There's no other way. 
you will die and then you will face judgment. And how are you going to do it, judgment? How do you feel about judgment? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were nature. By nature, we deserved wrath. We were children of wrath. We were under God's judgment. If we were unsaved, we would face God's judgment ourselves. And the truth is this, God's actually mad at you, but he's also mad about you. And this is the dynamic in God. God's mad at you because he's holy and just and we're sinners. God can't ignore sin. If he ignored sin, he wouldn't be just. Imagine someone, imagine someone had done a crime against you and the judge just said, oh, don't worry about it, just ignore it. You'd say that's unjust. Do you think God's like that? Do you think God just ignores sin? Of course God doesn't ignore sin. He's holy and perfect and pure. And therefore God's mad at you. He's passionately mad against sin. Don't mollycoddle sin. Don't justify it. It's horrendous. It's so serious it caused Jesus' life. It caused the, the death of the Son of God to take away sin. That's how serious sin is. God's mad at you. But God is also mad about you. The, the Son of God was willing to lay his life down for you. Don't for one moment say God doesn't care for you. You've, you have any idea what it cost him to care for you? Your sin is so serious and you are so loved. God is mad at you, but he's mad about you. And what took place on the cross? In fact, the greatest expression of God's wrath and judgment is not hell. The greatest expression ever of God's furious judgment was the cross. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Well, you could say in one sense, yes, Pontius Pilate agreed to his death and Roman soldiers nailed him. Was it me? I guess you could say, yes, it was me. My sin caused him to be put on the cross. Was it the Pharisees? You could say, okay, it was the Pharisees. They, in their, in their jealousy, wanted rid of Jesus. But let me tell you the bigger reality. Who killed Jesus? God the Father. That's a scary reality. Isaiah 53 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. Who laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all? God. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Who crushed Jesus? God the Father crushed God the Son. Through the Lord, and through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. What took place on the cross was incredible. The fury and anger of God against the sin of the world was diverted from the world to one man who was the substitute for all men. The wrath of God, the wrath of God for the sins of all humankind, every sin you can imagine, Adolf Hitler's sin, every pedophile sin, and every sinner in this room's sin, and you're all ashamed if you know what stuff you've done or even thought or intended in secret or in public, you know everything you've done, 
every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit for all 7 billion people who are alive and every other person who's ever lived or ever will live. Every sin was placed in one moment on one man. And the fury of God, that wrath that would cause eternal hell to be a reality, eternal hell, was poured out on full fury on the Son of God in that moment on the cross. The Lord caused him to be crushed. And his sin, our sin, was judged on Jesus. He took the full judgment. He took the full judgment. And when when I say he took the full judgment, it means that literally there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took your judgment. If he took your judgment, then you can't also take it. That's the amazing thing. You're going to stand before God and you will face the judgment seat of God. Absolutely. But you're acquitted. Your judgment was already, you've already passed judgment. Judgment was already dished dished out. Your judgment happened 2,000 years ago and you are now in Christ and your sin was judged on that cross 2,000 years ago. So you are now acquitted if you're a believer in Jesus. You've been declared righteous, acquitted, guiltless, completely sinless, free, forgiven. Despite your behavior, despite your messed up thoughts, despite all the stuff you battle with, you've been declared righteous. And that's amazing. The symbol of our religion is not the scales. Thank God. It's the cross. Islam still has the scales. Your good deeds versus your bad deeds. If that was the case, you're all scuppered. Far outweighs. You can never be good enough. But Jesus Christ on the cross paid the price for your sin. He took your judgment. Isn't God good? Let's pray. God, we're just amazed at you, the sovereign God, the ruler of the universe. The one who puts down and the one who raises up. The one who judges people. The one who causes situations to change. We honor you, God, the true God, the ruler. We have a deep fear of you. We revere you. And yet we also know your acceptance and we're so grateful to you. Just take a moment in his presence just to thank him, just to worship him, and just to focus on him. Pray back your response to what you've heard. While people are praying, I want to give you an opportunity this evening. I just very simply ask you the question, have you trusted in Jesus to be your saviour? If you're here tonight and you haven't trusted in Jesus to be your saviour, then you would face judgment yourself. And that's not God's plan for you. God wants you to experience forgiveness, but he won't force that upon you. You've got to step out and trust Jesus to be your saviour. So tonight, I urge you, I, I plead with you, if you're not saved, you are in a terrible predicament. Even if your life seems comfortable, you're in a terrible predicament eternally. And God in his love calls you tonight to himself. And if that's you tonight and you're saying, Peter, I want saved. I want to know this God who's holy and true and good and loving. Then just right now in his presence, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Under your breath, repeat after me. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me tonight. Jesus, thank you. You are willing to go to the cross, die in my place. I believe you paid the price for all my sin. 
And tonight, I trust you to be my Savior. I believe you rose again from the dead, and you're alive right now. Jesus, be Lord of my life. I commit myself to following you. I believe in you to be my Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me tonight as your child. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer and tonight you trusted Jesus to be your Savior, I would love to pray for you just wherever you are. If you did that tonight, if you made that decision and you prayed that prayer, could you just let me know you did it just by raising your hands? Just raise your hand. Is that you tonight? If that's the decision you made, I saw a hand a moment ago just over here. Is there anyone else? Tonight you're saying, that's me. Tonight I choose to follow Jesus. I trust Jesus to be my saviour. I need him to save me. That's me. Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you where you are. Is there anyone else who prayed that prayer? God, I pray for this gentleman tonight. In your presence, he's made a decision to trust Jesus as his saviour. And I thank you so much for saving him. Thank you, Jesus. That love that motivated you to go to the cross has saved him. And I pray tonight he will know the overwhelming love of God, the acceptance of God, and the joy to know that he's saved and God has got him eternally. Bless him now. Help him to walk. Walk strong. Walk with God. Be part of church. Grow in his faith. In Jesus' name. Heaven rejoices and so do we. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship this great and sovereign God. Let's stand in his presence.